All right, thank you. I um, decided not to wear my Raider mask today since uh, the part of the Bible we're talking about is persecution and I didn't want to give make you all a living example. So um, Terry Jones was a pastor in Florida and felt very passionately about what happened uh, in 2011. His response to that was to take a, a Koran and burn it in uh, front of uh, an audience in front of the television and make a big spectacle out of it. The problem is is that my friend Sonny, who is in a, a, a town in, in northern India, uh, news traveled quickly and in his village uh, the Muslims said, ah, all Christians must hate Muslims, so therefore we're going to go get him. So they, uh, they, they ran him and his wife from their home. They took them uh, and they, they doused them in oil and they were ready to light them on fire in their little town, their little village. As God's grace would have it, a, a, a law enforcement officer in that village came and arrested my friends, took them to jail, preserving their life, and then they were forced to leave that village. And uh, a few months later they went back to start another church. His name is Monday. He is a friend of mine in West Africa. He and I uh, were sitting together. He handed me a small cup of rice, which for him was a full day's worth of food. And he said, can we break bread together? Can we eat together? And we said, yes. And so we were sitting there talking, and he said, do you see that tree up on the hill there? It was about 200 yards away from where his church and his home was. And I said, yeah, I see that. He says, that's where we sleep at night. In the rain, in the cold, in the heat, whatever it is, that's where we sleep at night whenever there's tensions and uprisings in our area because if we don't, the extremists will pass by our building, light it on fire, and kill my family. He was tall. He was about six foot three, very slender, uh, actually very, very handsome. Uh, man who had the markings of his people, his tribal markings on his face. He, he carried a Christian name, but he was born a Muslim. He gave his heart to Christ, began to follow Jesus, began to put churches around his area. One day he was driving his motorcycle in West Africa, and I don't tell you the names and locations because I, I, my stuff is sometimes monitored from other countries. And uh, I just want to protect them. And as he's driving down on his motorcycle, somebody threw a brick and hit him and knocked him off of his bike. They beat him senseless. They stomped his head and they took a machete and whacked at his neck. And then they noticed the tribal markings on his face and said, wait, it's possible he's one of us. Let's don't kill him. So they left him to die in the street. We sat down together after that incident. And his voice was scratchy because it was just starting to heal. And his eyes were still red from being beaten and bloodshot. And I can tell you more stories. Um, I was in West Africa with a group of about 90 pastors. It was about 40 children. Seems like everybody in this country in West Africa, 96% Muslim country, by the way. Uh, everybody in this country has five kids. And when I said I only have two, they laughed at me. So 
almost every kid in this place, almost every man in this place, and almost every woman in this place were obviously malnutritioned. They were struggling. They couldn't eat. And so I, I asked the, my host, I said, how come these, these pastors and their families have no, no food? Why are they so malnutrition? They said, well, what you don't understand is that here in a 96% in a Muslim country, Muslims won't do business with us. Well, they won't hire us. And so since most of our country is day labor, most of the world is day labor, by the way. And what I mean by that is they go to work in the morning, they get a a little bit of a, of a salary, some cash, and then they go and they buy their breakfast for the next morning and their dinner for that night. They eat their dinner, they eat their breakfast, and then they go work again. And these folks were so struggling. One of the good news is, uh, one of the good things that we do is when we go, I always say, okay, we're going to buy a cow or two cows and we're going to butcher them. And... We're going to buy bags and bags of rice. So not only do they eat very well, they take it with them. Uh, it's just one of the blessings that we've been able to do over the years. We think of persecution. We think of pain. We think of suffering. And I think there's some, some framing that we have to do for that in our world and in our day-to-day. Um, in, in cities, uh, in Christian circles across the, across the world, about 80% of Christ followers today live in a region where their faith is restricted. And when I say restricted, it's not about saying you have to meet outside. It's about saying you can't meet at all, you can't gather, you can't worship God. You, it, it's restricted. And about 60 to 65% of Christ followers around the world today could be put to death for following Jesus. And so we come to a text this morning from the words of Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus, that starts with just this awkward statement, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Wait a minute, Jesus, what is wrong with you? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. That doesn't even make sense to us, does it? This is really good news if you're persecuted for righteousness. And these days with covid Impacting the globe, impacting our world, impacting us because we've all been affected by it in one way or another. We have, we have a tendency to think because of restrictions that we, as followers of Jesus, are suffering. We've been forced to meet outside. We've been told you cannot gather in groups of... We, we hear that. And when I hear that and I think about my friends in other places and I think about what they struggle with, and I think about their plight and their journey, I sometimes wonder if maybe we need to be instructed by Jesus when it comes to persecution, when it comes to what it really is. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12. I'm going to read it for you uh, out loud here, and then uh, we're just going to have a conversation about it, if that's okay with you. I'm sure it is because I have the microphone. Jesus said this, Blessed are you, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can I just pray real quick and ask God to speak to us? Father, we want to come to you and we want to hear from you. Lord, these are incredible times. We're experiencing things in our country that we've not experienced before. Uh, we are facing a shift in our world, God, that, that actually makes anxiety live in the hearts of people who know you, who feel like things are being taken away. And Lord, we all feel that in different ways. We want to acknowledge that that's a very real feeling. But Lord, we need you to inform us. We need you to instruct us. And so, Jesus, we want you to be our teacher this morning by the power of your Spirit. And God, if you'll do that, we will say thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to just make some observations from this text. Instead of trying to, to uh, paint some great picture that we would all walk away going, ah, here's, here's the theology of suffering, here's the theology of persecution, I just want to make some observations from what Jesus said. If I can do that, I think we'll all walk out of here with maybe a, a, a little bit uh, of an understanding of what Jesus was teaching us. And the first observation is this, to understand Jesus' words that, you know, blessed are you when you're persecuted, that, that backwards, upside-down thought, blessed are you when, when they, they come after you and they, they revile you, speak evil against you, they mock you. Uh, blessed are you, that upside-down thought, for us to understand those words, we need to know the difference between pain and persecution. I was with a group of uh, Christians, we were in a small group, we were sitting around, and somebody was talking about, about this suffering that Christians have, and they opened up a, a, their Bible and they turned to 1 Peter chapter 4 and said, ah, when we suffer, the glory of God is on us. And I said, yes, that is so true, but it has nothing to do with your backache. Because they said, oh, I've been suffering, oh, it's just been very difficult. When the Bible speaks of suffering and persecution, it always has to do with our connection to Christ and the mission of God and the life that He calls us to live. But the Bible also addresses our pain. What's interesting, though, is the Bible gives us the same response to God in both. But we have to understand there's a difference. I was, uh, I was uh, cooking yesterday, and as I came into the house, I happened to hit my toe. Now, any of you ever kick your little toe on the side of something and it feels like um, the second coming has been delayed by a year? You're just struggling. Oh, no, I'm, this is, I don't want to walk. I just want to lay here and cry and hold myself tenderly. And I did that. And that was pain. But it wasn't suffering. There's a difference. I know you won't believe this, but I, I do stupid things sometimes. I have done, I've made decisions that people would look at and say, he's not the, the, the sharpest tool in the shed. There's something wrong with that guy. And it has cost me dearly in other places, and it caused great pain. That is pain, but it's not suffering. It's not persecution. It's different. And it requires a different response. Jesus is not talking about the pain that comes into our life, the result of wrong that we did, the result of wrong done to us. He's not talking about that. He's not saying, listen, uh, your, your, your parents were not nice to you, and you have, you've suffered, you've been persecuted. He, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, listen, listen, um, 
You live in a broken world and by the very nature that our world is broken and sin entered the world and death through sin according to the scriptures. We may have read that before. Some of us get cancer. Some of us get COVID. Some of us get uh, high blood pressure. Some of us have medical issues and it, that's different than what Jesus is talking about. The world we live in gives us access to all that garbage. And we're, we're, we're not immune from it because the world is broken. That's what the Bible says. And we're broken too. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus isn't talking about the fruit of our foolishness. Here's what he's saying. Listen. When you claim me and you do what is right for me, he's not talking about morality. He's talking about the mission of God. He's not saying, oh, now that you know Jesus, you don't tell as many lies, and so you're persecuted for being honest. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, when you do the right thing, you live in the mission and the heart and the path of God because of him. When you do that, and the world flashes its anger and snarls its teeth at you, you're blessed. That's what he's saying here. Because remember, Jesus is setting up the kingdom. He's not setting up a right and wrong moral standard. He's actually setting up how you live out the kingdom of God every day around you in contrast to the world around us. He says, listen, I want you to understand that when you do, when you do the right thing in the name of Christ, you're going to be chased down, you're going to be attacked, and you're going to suffer persecution. He says, and you're blessed for that. You're blessed for that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Here's what he's saying is, in, in, in this culture, in this day, when these people begin to follow Christ, when the early church began to follow Christ, part of their persecution was because they said, we cannot bow to Caesar. We cannot bow to Caesar. Not in the way that, not in the way that a, a, a popular preacher mentioned it this past week and a half. That's not what Jesus is talking about. These were people who said, we have one God and only one God and we will not worship any other God. He's Jesus and in that culture, in the Roman culture, the emperor represented deity and you had to worship him. To It was, it was treason to worship another God. And they died for that. And Jesus said, you're blessed for that. He, he, when, we, when we live in a place where we say, you know what, I got to tell you about Jesus no matter what it costs me. Because the cost is too high for anybody else. No matter what it costs me, I'm going to speak boldly of the love and the goodness of my God. And you're persecuted. That's what he's saying you're blessed for. This is the kingdom that he's speaking of. We have to understand that. Because we cannot... We have this tendency, all of us do, to take whatever the Bible says and translate it into an American culture that is not Christian culture. It's American culture, influenced by God. But it's not the Bible's culture. And we have to be able to step into this place and say, Jesus isn't talking about my rights and my freedoms. He's not talking about the first, second, third, or fourth, or fifth, or tenth or amendment. He's talking about the cause of Christ. And when you step into the cause of Christ, and it costs you, and he said, I mean, how nice of Jesus to warn us. How nice of Jesus to say, listen, come with me, and it's going to leave a mark. Come with me, it's going to hurt. Come with me, 
And it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. He says, because that's, you're going to be blessed for doing it. He warned us, and he said, when you do, that, that is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for taking my name and making it their name. That's what he's saying. And so the first observation that I would make from this text is that if we really want to get inside of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, we've got to understand and know the difference between pain and persecution. I don't want anybody here to hurt. I don't want anybody to be distressed. I don't want anybody here to feel that kind of angst and anguish. But my pain is not the same as being persecuted. It's different. Both are real, but they're not the same. And we have to know that. Otherwise, we're not going to interpret the words of Jesus correctly. Here's another observation that I'd make for you. To understand the words of Jesus, we need to know the centrality of the mission of God to the people of God. You're going to find this out about me if you haven't picked it up already. I'm about one thing, and that is the making disciples who make disciples. That's all I'm about. I don't have any other mission. I don't have any other passion. Uh, well, I do like the Raiders, but that's lesser, right? I don't have any other drive or desire than to see everyone who can know God know God and to see you be the ones who bring them to, for you and me to say, I make disciples and my disciples make disciples and those disciples make disciples because that literally is what Jesus did when he was on the earth. That's exactly what he did. He made disciples, and then they made disciples. It was, it was how he bore fruit. It was how he reproduced. And that is what he told us to do when he said, I want you to go make disciples now. I want you to go now do this. And every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we have to understand that when Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, it is in light of that. It's not in light of our getting together on a Sunday morning, which I do love, by the way. It's not that. It's not in light of us being able to say, ah, oh, we can sing this song or not that song. It's not that. It is in light of this one thing, that we, as a community of faith, figure out how to make disciples who make disciples. When you do that, it's going to upset the fruit basket, folks. It's going to upset your own life. And he says, blessed are you. When your life gets so upside down and people turn on you, and people come against you. And people persecute you. Because you've lived into the mission that I created when I came to the earth. I was with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. And we were talking about this. And I, tongue in cheek, jokingly said, just think how much Jesus could have got done if he had a First Amendment. <laughs> I don't mean to offend anybody because I love the First Amendment. I love living in a country that has that. But the reality of it is, is I don't need the First Amendment or any amendment to make a disciple. I just don't. All I need is the instruction and example of Jesus. And that's what he's giving us here in Matthew 5. That's what he's calling us to. And the beauty of it is, is we can do that. We can do that with freedom. We can do that with joy. We can do that with grace. We have to understand that that's the central thought of Jesus as he came to earth. I'm going to pay the penalty for sin, and I'm going to start a movement called the church. 
Not I'm going to start a church and hope it becomes a movement, but I'm going to start a movement and we're going to call it the church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what Jesus did. And he did it by making disciples. That's the centrality of it. Historically, the people of God have been persecuted for four basic reasons. First of all, their spiritual fidelity. I am not going to worship another god. Uh, I'm not going to worship the gods of Rome. I'm not going to worship the emperor. I'm not going to worship Buddha. I'm not going to worship Allah. I'm not going to worship the the millions and millions of Hindu gods and goddesses. I'm not going to worship pagan deities. I'm going to stay true to the worship of Jesus Christ himself. That's what I'm going to do. That was not a corporate expression of gathering. That's, an, that's more of a Western idea. That was literally in, in little homes where five or six met together because any more than that would have gotten them killed. Rodney Stark, who was a sociologist, said this, in the city of Rome in the first century, there were probably 1,500 to 2,000 churches, ranging from groups of five or six to two or 300, depending on their space. And they met in these smaller groups and in these smaller homes, not because of any other reason than if they met in larger groups, they would have been killed. That's persecution. We have to understand that historically the people of God have been persecuted because of their spiritual fidelity to God. Also their missional fidelity, their faithfulness to the mission of God. We're going to tell you about Jesus no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs. I had, a, uh, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, um, he's not a pastor, but he said this, we need pastors to be brave and stand up and be courageous. And just defy everyone, just do what they're supposed to do. And I said, ah, okay, okay. And then I had another conversation where somebody said, we need pastors to be tender and kind and be careful with all the people around who might be struggling. Ah, I got, I got both sides pulling at me. And I want to say this, you're both wrong. I need to be faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. And if you think that gathering on a Sunday morning is the proclamation of the gospel, you're mistaken. I do not have to gather with you to proclaim the gospel. I can do it every day. In the coffee shop, with my neighbor, anywhere I go because the gospel lives in me. And in fact, if we were to study churches in this country today, more than half of them See, nobody meet Christ year after year after year. But every one of them say we're faithful to the gospel. And I say, no, you're not. You're faithful to a theology called the gospel, but not to the living of it out. I've got to say this, East Parkway. When I go over the reports of what has happened in this church the last few years, and I've been studying them, reading them, praying for you, nobody has met Christ. Nobody's been baptized in the last few years in this church. And yet it says we're faithful to the gospel. And I want to say, let's change what that means. Because I believe in your heart you are. I want to change the understanding of what that means. Because I want you to get what Jesus said. Great is your reward in heaven when you stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody else that you've been faithful to proclaim the gospel. And here's its fidelity to the mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to others. I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about witnessing. 
Those, those words just make you turn in your stomach sometimes. I'm talking about loving people in the name of Christ so that they have an opportunity to become followers of Jesus. Let me give you something else. They, they were persecuted for, for their spiritual fidelity. They were refusing to worship other gods. They were persecuted for their missional fidelity. They were persecuted for their moral fidelity. And when I talk about moral fidelity, I am not talking about they, they no longer told lies. They were all perfectly moral. We live in a culture that shouts, uh, uh, I grew up in the era of the moral majority where we thought if we could just get people to be moral, we'll even legislate it, we'll write it down, we'll pass laws, we'll put Ten Commandments on a wall. And we abdicated our personal responsibility to walk and disciple somebody and say, hey, listen, this is what it means to be a friend of God. Let's just walk together so you can discover who He is and watch Him transform you and watch Him change you. When they were committed to their moral fidelity, here's what they said, I refuse to practice what pagans practice. That was their moral fidelity. I refused to, I refused to let their pagan religions enter into my faith in Christ. So Paul writes these words, maybe you know them, Ephesians 5:11. Have nothing to do with unfruitful deeds of wickedness. Anybody know that? But instead, expose them. In the context of what Paul is writing, now I want you to know, I grew up hearing that sentence going, oh. That means I get to point fingers at people and expose the sin of other people. That's not what Paul was talking about. What Paul was saying is, look, in, in Ephesus, there is a goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on if you were Greek or Roman, and in their temple, here's what they did. They sacrificed and they, they had immorality and they, they, they were all kinds of debauchery. And Paul says, listen, amongst us, we don't do that. And by our moral fidelity, our refusal to practice that, we expose the unfruitful deeds of wickedness. When we allow our culture to invade our methodologies, our preferences to invade our methodologies, we run the risk of being transformed by culture and not by Christ. And we have to pay close attention to that. And here's the final one, relational fidelity. They just simply love Jesus above everything else. I just love Jesus more than anything else. I just love him. I just want to be, and I don't love him because I'm noble. I love him because he loves me. We love because, what's that rest of that? He first loved us. It's not some nobility in me that loves Jesus. It is his deep love for me and his deep love for you that makes us go, well, I think of uh, Polycarp, who was, who was killed in the, in, 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 he was a disciple of John, and he was, he was told, listen, if you, will, if you will just simply make this sacrifice, we're going to let you go. If not, it's going to cost you. And he said, for about 85 years, I have been loved by God, and I love him back, and I can't wait to finish in loving God. They were persecuted for their fidelity and their love for God. Here's the third observation. To understand the words of Jesus, we not only need to know the difference between pain and persecution, we need to know that the mission of God is central. And we also have to understand the words of Jesus, if we want to, we have to embrace the response of Scripture. All right, this is going to get personal if it hasn't already. I'm going to just be blunt if that's okay with you. Christians, stop our whining. 
Stop our whining. Because see, here's the reality. Here's the, here's the reality. That is not one of the responses God gives us in the Bible to persecution. Hey, listen, when you suffer, I need you to whine and complain and, and, and shake your fist at Caesar. Do that. When you suffer persecution, when you are restricted, here's what I need you to do. I need you to, to post it on Facebook and then make enemies of anybody who disagrees and then start looking through every thread that somebody has to find out if they've got one little sentence that you may not agree with. I know none of you do that. Here's what I want you to do when you face opposition or persecution. I want you, all right, you ready for this word? Rejoice. I got to tell you, I've not heard one Christian rejoice over any law or rule or restriction that's been passed. Why not? The Bible says that's actually how we should respond to this. Rejoice. I stand out here and I see your faces and I think, ha, 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 ha. Look what they thought they could do. They can't. Let's rejoice. Can't stop the church. Can't stop the gospel. Can't stop what Jesus wants done because he wants it done. Rejoice. Here's what he says. Uh, take joy. Uh, be encouraged that you've been counted worthy to carry a name, to carry a cause, to carry a mission. This is what he tells us. There, he says, I want you to be patient. There's two words for patience in the Bible. One word means to, to endure in the face of struggle. The other means to remain underneath. And God uses this word to remain underneath. He says, I want you to be patient. In other words, I'm not, I'm not telling you whether when your pressure's on you, wiggle your way out. He says, I want you to remain underneath so that character's formed. And character brings about hope, right? He says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to respond. Paul said things like, these light and these momentary afflictions... I have more people sending me notes telling me the sky is falling. And I'm saying, well, you only think that because you think the devil owns the sky. My God owns the sky. Amen? And it's not falling. It's just simply unfolding like he promised us. And when we read this, we shouldn't be going, oh, no, there's a one world order. And oh, no, this could happen. And oh, no, we could get an injection and they could trick us. And we might have a microchip that make us the mark of the beast. And we won't be able to shop or eat. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Stop it. Stop it. Because none of that is from God. Here's what God says. When we see that unfold, we should be going, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come. I got to get busy because I don't want you to find me sitting around doing nothing when you come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And what a good news that is. That's, that's the response he tells us. Rejoice, be glad. You've been counted worthy for something of great value. Suffering that makes a hero of the sufferer fails to be about Jesus. I've suffered, oh, I've been Percy, oh, that fails to be about Jesus. It becomes about you. And Paul suffered. He said, I carry in my body the scars of Jesus. Wow, what a statement that is. That's not just simply going, oh, look, I got this scratch here when I told those Pharisees about Jesus. And over here, this mark, that's when they hit me. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, listen, Jesus is so amazing. Any mark I have on my body are his scars. He goes on to say this. I am praying and pursuing fellowship with his suffering. Fellowship. I want to be so united to Christ, not just in the good, but in his suffering. That's the only way we're going to understand the words of Jesus. Let me make one more observation, because I don't think you can take much more of me. To understand the words of Jesus, we have to be immersed in the worth of Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5, God says in chapter 4, Who's worthy? You are worthy, God. And all the angels and the 24 elders, they all circle around and they sing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. You know why? Because he is. He's just that big a deal. He's just that big a deal. And then in chapter 5, it says, who's going to open the scrolls? Who's going who's to begin to unfold? Who's worthy to even take that place? And we couldn't find anyone. And then John writes, oh, but we found somebody. His name is Jesus. And he's worthy. And the two reasons Revelation 4 and 5 give for the worthiness of God is simply because in Revelation 4, it says that he created everything we owe him, right? We're responsible to him, not he to us. And then it says when everything got messed up, it says in chapter 5, he purchased men for God with his own blood. Jesus himself said, I'm going to come and I'm going to make right what was wrong. I'm going to do what you cannot do yourself. And when we follow Christ, we're declaring that Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. Take my home. I don't care. You're worthy. Take my, take my freedom. I don't care. You're worthy. I will not turn my back on you because you were worthy. When people suffer, and are persecuted, they are declaring a worth and a value in Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing. Let me close with this. I was in um, North India. We were in a little room. It was wintertime there, and it was raining. It wasn't super cold, but it was probably in the 40s. We're sitting in this room that's not much bigger than two of these tents connected. Water is running down the walls because there's no, the roof itself leaks so badly. And we're sitting there. And I'm with about 40 or 50 pastors and their wives. Some of them have their small children. And I ask them this question. What makes the church grow? What makes the church grow? Every person, to a man, to a woman, and if the children could have said it, they would have said this. Persecution makes the church grow. You guys ever heard that before? You ever heard that? It's false. It's not true. What makes the church grow is disciple making. It's when we simply look at somebody and say, I'm going to be teaching you how to follow Jesus so you can teach someone else to follow Jesus so they can teach someone else to follow Jesus because wherever the church spread that's what they did they knew disciples before churches is what it was disciples went somewhere they started making more disciples and they just said well let's have a church 
Let's gather together. Let's do a meeting. What makes the church grow is disciple-making. Not the gathering, but disciple-making. That's what makes it grow. What makes it spread is persecution. And yes, persecution purifies us. And yes, persecution... I had a friend, pastor, tell me, well, if this whole COVID season, we'll see who really was serious about following Jesus. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you say that? Why would you, why would you impugn godly people in that kind of a statement? Why wouldn't you just simply say, I'm going to go find anyone I can, make a disciple out of them, so that when we are free to gather again, if that's what God lets us do, we will be together. Why would you simply make an us and them, and you are always in the us, not the them, and why would you? And folks, we do that all the time, don't we? And Jesus is saying, listen, there's not an us and them, there's a blessed. And you're blessed. When you declare the worth of God and say, whatever it takes to make disciples who make disciples. That's what we'll do. And it'll cost you. The Bible said it would. It'll cost you. It'll be painful. It'll be difficult. It doesn't matter the freedom or the lack of freedom in your culture because Jesus said, and when you do that, guess what? You're going to have a father go against a son and a mother against a daughter and a brother against a brother because it's going to divide. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Let's let him be the in and out guy. Let's let him be the us and them guy. Why don't we just be the on mission guys and gals? I'm just going to go make disciples. I'm just going to go love somebody. I'm going to go teach them how to be a friend and follower of Jesus. I'm going to close with this because uh, we have had uh, several weeks of just fun, haven't we? We've been out here. There's been some hope. People say it's been really hopeful. It's been fun. And I'm glad because I actually like to have fun one of my favorite things to do. I like to goof off. I like to play. If you uh, ever spent time with me, there's a chance you might get a practical joke occasionally. Never mean and never in a way that I couldn't deny it. See, here's the truth. I want this church to be a disciple-making church. I want this church to say, listen, we're going to train and equip and work side by side with each other to make as many disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what I believe God wants the church to do. And so that's what you get when you get me. That's the mission. That's the vision. That's the value. But it's not about me saying, hey, let's go do that because most of us don't know how to do that. Even though most of us in this, in this little gathering are very versed in the Word, we've been around the Scriptures a long time, I'm talking about how do you do that with a person? How do you walk with somebody? That's coming our direction soon. And I, I will do everything I can to equip you, to train you, to pour into you so that you can say, I'm making disciples. Because Jesus said it this way. Great is your reward in heaven. There's only two things you, that are going to be in heaven for sure. God and people. We know that. We know his word lives forever. We can, you can parse that out and argue with me if you want, but that would be silly because you know what I mean. Here's the reality. God and people. And so the greatest commandment is love God and love people. Why? Because you're going to spend forever with them. And great is your reward in heaven.
when we do that. That's where we're headed. I hope you're with me. I hope we can all do that together. If not, you can send me to a Baptist church. I don't know. Can I pray with you? Father in heaven, thank you. We hear these words and we think, what do we do with them? Help us frame them in light of what you were saying to us. Help us frame them in light of our fidelity to you and why you've actually called us. And Lord, if any of us are struggling with these words, may your Holy Spirit remove anything that is not from you. Anything that is from you. Would you settle it deeper into us? So that in the end, you would get all the credit. You would get all the honor and glory. And in the end, whatever it costs, we win. We pray that in Jesus' name.